What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Truly is a fundamental question in the Christian life. But as you talk about following Jesus, you talk to others about following Jesus, perhaps even what does it mean to be a Christian? What is a Christian? You find a host of different answers. Following Jesus means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. For some, following Jesus means living a morally upright and commendable life. For others, following Jesus means being called a Christian. Perhaps praying a particular prayer. Some call it a sinner's prayer. Others means walking an aisle, being baptized, taking communion. For some, being a Christian means knowing and understanding deep theological truths. For most, following Jesus means trying to live the best life you can live so that you don't fall out of favor with God. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us to our own inventions about what it means to follow him. He tells us, and in John 13, he tells us very clearly what it means to follow him. John 13 begins the sort of final uh, section of the Gospel of John. It marks the beginning of the end of the Gospel. In this final section, the pace of the narrative, which has been quite rapid, slows to a very steady, minute-by-minute pace. What had been really a rapid look at the first three years of Jesus' ministry in chapters 1 through 12, now slows to a, a, a really death march pace as John gives us a very unique look at the last week of Jesus's ministry in fact many if not most of the material in John chapter 13 through 17 is not mentioned in any of the synoptic gospels of Matthew Mark and Luke John gives us a unique eyewitness account as one who was there beside Jesus when he gave these instructions in John chapter 13 Or when Jesus took them out to the Mount of Olives and gave them that Olivet Discourse or the High Priestly Prayer. Jesus here takes time in his final hours, literally his final day, to instruct his disciples in his final and longest discourse in all of Scripture. Beginning in John 13, ending in John 17 is the longest sustained teaching that Jesus ever gives. And it's all about giving us a theological understanding and helping us see the significance of his death on the cross. For his disciples, their perspective was before the cross. For John and for us, it would be a perspective after the cross. As John seeks to help us through the teaching of Jesus, to understand what is the cross? What does it mean? And how does it change my life? Here in these final hours, Jesus will give his disciples the next steps of ministry. They had lived with Jesus for three years, and now Jesus is telling them, I'm leaving, and you cannot come where I'm going. What are they to do? They've left their family 
They left their jobs. They've left everything behind to follow Jesus. What's next? And Jesus instructs them through these chapters of what is coming. About the gift of the Spirit. And about this new community called the church that they were to lead out in. In this global evangelistic effort where they would draw all men to Jesus through this new community. And fundamentally, Jesus here in these chapters answers the question of how do we follow him until he comes again? What are, what are we to do? What are Jesus' disciples to do? What are we as Christians to do between Jesus' ascension and his return? That's what we want to think about this morning in John chapter 13. So I invite you to turn there if you've not already. In John chapter 13... It's found on page 900 in the pew Bibles in front of you. So if you see those little black pew Bibles, grab one out, turn it to page 900. John 13, Lord willing, is there. If not, ask a neighbor for help. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already been put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not now understand, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I don't wash your feet... You have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you all are clean, but not every one of you. For Jesus knew who was to betray him. This is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put out his outer garment, and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one whom he sent. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take, take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. 
one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, uh, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. As Christians, the cross is to be central in our lives. Jesus provides for us in this passage a picture of his sacrificial love for us on the cross. The point of John 13 is to be a living illustration for you and I, for his disciples and for us, of what the cross is really all about. It's about God sending his son to humbly die in utter humiliation, sacrificially loving us rather than himself. That we might humbly serve and love one another. This morning, you're going to hear a lot of imperatives. In this passage, you perhaps have heard before, you've read it before. You've heard a lot of imperatives already today that we're to serve others and love one another. And we should. But serving the way Jesus served and loving the way Jesus loved is impossible. Apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. If Jesus had not gone to the cross, it would be impossible to do the things Jesus commands us to do. But we'll see this morning that Jesus' act of humiliation and sacrificial love enables you and I to do the same. To live truly a cross-centered life. And so this morning, we really see two main ideas. If you take notes, if you want to take notes, or if you just want to jot down two words... Humble and love. Humble service and sacrificial love. These are the two main ideas we see in this passage. We see them lived out in the person of Jesus Christ. 
So in verses 1 through 30, we see that the humiliation of the cross enables our humble service towards one another. I hope to demonstrate to you this morning that that what Jesus did to his disciples really wasn't about washing feet, but really about giving them a memorable picture, something, an event that they would never forget, explaining what Jesus did for them on the cross of Calvary. And secondly, we see then in verses 31 and 38 in Jesus' command to love that the sacrificial love of Christ on the cross enables us to sacrificially love others in the way that Jesus did. Well, we see here in verses 1 through, through 30, the sort of humiliation of Christ. Uh, perhaps a, a familiar passage to you. Perhaps you grew up in a church that did foot washing. I hope to show you a little bit about why that's not exactly what Jesus was after here in this passage. But we're told here in verse 1 that it's the that it's before the feast of the Passover. John 13 is set in the context of the, the, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Interestingly enough, John doesn't include in his gospel, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, the, the institution of the Lord's Supper. What we are going to do in just a moment in taking communion together, John doesn't include that at all. Perhaps because he's like, hey, look, it's already been written about. Uh, he's writing this gospel much later. He kind of, this is already going on in the church, really not really his point. His point here is to give us sort of this eyewitness account of of some other things that took place that night to help give some theological understanding and illustration to what Jesus is going to do on Calvary. In other words, John here is going to emphasize that what's most important is what Jesus is going to do the next day, not so much what he's doing this night. But we're told here in verse 1 that Jesus knew that his hour had come. Now, throughout the Gospel of John, uh, repeatedly we saw this phrase, his hour had not come, his hour had not come. But now his hour has come. And and that hour that John's referring to is the hour of his crucifixion, the hour of his death. Jesus came into this world to die. He came into this world to die the death sinners deserve. And and this is the purpose for which he came. This is the point which John is trying to forward to us this morning. That Jesus Christ came into the world to die. And we're told that he has loved his own to the end. Look there at verse 1 again at the end. He loved them to the end. Now, why I'm arguing this morning that this passage is more about the cross than than mere foot washing is because John sets the context in verse 1 by by using a particular phrase, to the end. He loved them to the end. Now you might think, well, man, his act of foot washing was pretty loving. It was a pretty gross thing he did. I guess he loved them. But more importantly here, it's the cross. You see, the word that, Paul, or that John uses here is tetelestai. It is finished. He loved them until it is finished. Until the end. What was the end? His death on the cross. And so John here sets the context for us of the humiliation of the cross, which is illustrated in the humiliation of foot washing. 
You see, Jesus' act here in John chapter 13 is probably, perhaps, one of the most humiliating acts that a Jewish person could take upon themselves in this community. We're told that Jesus here with his disciples washes their feet. But before he does, notice what we are told there in verse 2 and verse 3. Number one, we see that Judas Iscariot is already indwelt by the devil. The seed of betrayal has already been in the heart and Jesus knows it. Yet he still washes his feet. Jesus' enemy is sitting there as Jesus washes the filth from his feet. Jesus washes the feet of his enemy. Secondly, we see in verse 3 who Jesus is. Look with me there again. Jesus knowing that the Father has given him all things into his hands and that he has come from God and was going back to God. We see something about Jesus' position. He has all things in his hand, right? As, the, as the, the kids sing, the whole world's in his hands. Jesus has ultimate authority. He is the supreme ruler of the cosmos. He knows where he came from and he knows where he's going. Yet he's willing to bend his knee to do a menial act of service in order to display to his disciples what he's about to do on the cross. And so we're told that that there at supper, he got up, he took off his outer garment, he got a bowl of water together, and he began to wash his disciples' feet. And you know, even today, contextually, it's pretty gross, all right? Like most of us, I I don't know, if you're a foot person, you're weird, all right? Uh, Feet are gross, aren't they? They stink. They're smelly. Even in our hygienic age, feet are still gross. And how much more in a day when when you walked around in dust and dirt with open sandals exposed to all the filth and all the trash. This is why we take our stinking shoes off when we go in our houses, right? Because it's gross. We don't know what's on the bottom of our souls. How much more that the eternal God bends His knee to wash the dung and the, fee, the, the filth off the feet of his disciples. Well, we see how horrible this act was in the, the horror of Peter's response. Peter's like, what are you doing, Jesus? Like, Jesus, I've been chilling with you for three years, and this is getting a little gross now. What are you doing? You see, in this culture, not even Jewish slaves would have washed the feet of the disciples. This was a job often left to the the least of these in society. Gentile slaves. Some real righteous Pharisees would have been appalled. They would have left the room. They would have have said, I want nothing to do with that man. He just did something that, that is unthinkable, undoable. He washed the feet. He, He himself has become unclean. And Jesus taking on an act of utter humiliation. Though he is the supreme God of the universe, he takes this position to display what he will do on the cross. And we see the first main idea. Now, here's my point. 
See, what, this is what we do often. We read John 13 and we skip over the end, uh, the middle here. In other words, we skip over verses 7 through 11 and we get real close. We get right on to the imperative of verse 12. Go do likewise, don't we? Oh, we got to go wash people's feet. We got to be servants. We got to maybe even do that here in church. And we miss the main idea that Jesus has. Look with me here. Here is the main idea. Jesus says, verse 7, What I am doing to you, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Afterward what? After what? Does he refer? After he gets done washing their feet? No. After the cross. Jesus has in his mind that they will not cognitively recognize what he did to them in that moment until the cross gives significance to it. In other words, it's a lesser than greater argument. The greater is the cross. The lesser is this menial act of service, which is pointing them to the cross. That the cross was an act of utter humiliation. And it was. A man barely clothed. I mean, put, put this statement in, in context of the cross. Knowing that the Father had given him all things and, and that he came from God and was going back to God. Put that in the context of Jesus hanging on a cross. That's what Paul does in the Philippians 2, isn't it? Taking on the form of a servant, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus here is instructing his disciples that if they cannot accept the humiliation of the cross, then they cannot accept the gospel of Jesus Christ because they're inseparable. The cross of Jesus Christ is not a cute little thing to hang on a wall and hang around our neck. The cross of Jesus Christ is a picture of utter humiliation of the eternal Son of God for our sin. It is meant to bring about sorrow and sadness. Not something we're just jumping around about. At least we do later. But the, the immediacy of the cross is to bring about the kind of horror that we see in Peter. Well, let's look at Peter's horror. He says to him in verse 6, Lord, do you wash my feet? He's like, whoa, this, is, uh, this isn't right. And then he doubles down, as Peter often does. Like Peter, you're going to see Peter's character in this section here more than any, any other. Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. In other words, uh, a, a, an exclamation point there would have been better. Uh, you shall never, no, not never, he says. He's emphatically negate. this is not happening. What is happening? He's like, stop, Jesus, right now. Right now, I want you to stop. This is never going to happen. Similarly to what G Peter says to Jesus elsewhere, where he says, no, you're not going to die. You're not going to the cross. You're not going to die. And what does Jesus say? He says, Peter, or in fact, he calls him Satan. He says, Satan, get out of my way. See, Peter was always trying to stop Jesus from his mission, because for Peter, he was thinking sort of temporally rather than eternally. And Jesus responds here with the main, the, sort of the main idea here. If, verse 8, I do not wash you, you have no share of me. 
If you cannot accept the humiliation of the cross, you cannot accept the cross for your salvation. Jesus here is preparing his disciples for what the significance of the cross. And like Peter always is, he goes all in and he responds by saying, Hey, Jesus, don't just wash my feet, like wash my whole body. That sounds like fun. And Jesus responds by saying, Fool, you've already bathed. In other words, like when you go to somebody's house, right? You might wash your hands, right? Because your hands maybe got dirty or whatever. Uh, but you don't like take a bath, right? You don't go to someone's house and it's like, hey, you know, from, from my house to your house, I got really dirty and I need to take a bath. I'm like, no, that's really weird. Um, no, you might wash your hands. That, that's what Jesus is sort of saying here to him. He's like, Peter, you, you took a bath. You, you're clean. You don't need to wash your whole body off. All right. And, and so Jesus here is teaching Peter that what he needs is the cross. And in the cross is where we receive our cleansing. As he says here or in verse 10, that you are completely clean. Every one of you are clean. You are clean by faith. See, the disciples have already believed in Jesus. They've already trusted in Jesus. They don't need to come to Jesus again and again to be cleansed. No, no, the, the, the once-for-all nature of the cross here, Jesus says. This is what Jesus teaches. Jesus is saying that the cross provides a once-for-all cleansing, a cleansing by which we don't have to repeatedly go to. This is why we have no altar in this church. Because Jesus Christ was sacrificed once and for all on the cross. He does not get sacrificed in the Lord's Supper. It is a memorial to the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. This is what Jesus is teaching in this passage. He's like, you're clean. You're clean because you have believed in me that I'm the one who's come to die for your sins. Well, Jesus teaches secondly here in verses 14 through 17, the pattern for Christian conduct. This is the second teaching that Jesus, not the primary teaching. The, the primary teaching is that the humiliation of the cross leads to the secondary teaching, okay? The, 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 the primary idea is that Jesus died, which enables us then to serve. He is the model of service. If we have no cross, then we have no ability to serve one another. Notice what he writes here. Do you understand what I did to you? You call me teacher and Lord. Again, he's, he's putting himself positionally above them, but yet demonstrating that no one is beyond serving and no one is beyond being served. See, there are two problems that we often have, isn't it? One is that we think we're good, too good to serve, but I think an equal problem is we think we're too good to be served. Oh, no, 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 no. I got it. I can do it. You understand that's just as prideful as a person who doesn't serve. If you can't be served, then what is Jesus doing for you? Perhaps you can't even be served by Jesus. Jesus says, I give you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Now, again, if, if, you are, if, we, if we understand this wrongly to mean that Jesus here is giving us an ordinance to follow, then yes, we should do just as Jesus did and come up here and parade everybody around and wash each other's feet. But if Jesus here 
is really teaching us that we are to do just as he did on the cross, then we are to humbly serve others in ways that cost us our lives. The kind of service that Jesus has in mind here is a service that is costly, a costly service. You know, a lot of times we serve one another in ways that really isn't costly. It doesn't cost us anything. It's easy. You know, it is kind of costly to have to get up early in the morning to make sure, you know, maybe folks get to church by driving a van or picking someone up on the way. That's costly. You know, it's kind of costly to, you know, help a brother or sister walk through some sin, some difficulty in their life, or or to, as a husband and wife, to walk a couple through a difficult marriage in a difficult season. You know, that's pretty costly. Anyone who's ever counseled anyone will tell you it's costly. It's emotionally, physically, and most importantly, spiritually draining an event. Preaching is costly. <laughs> I, I tell Pastor Rod every Sunday, you know, pastor, if you're, you know, pastors want to leave it all in the field, kind of, you know, that, that's, that's how Pastor Rod and I, we want to leave it all in the field. And so after church, you could blow me over with a feather because I've left it all on the field. And, and some folks have experienced what that looks like, you know, uh, after church because you've left it all on the field. You're just emotionally and, and physically and, and spiritually drained. It's, it's a vulnerable place. For you, maybe you've experienced that. And Jesus here in this passage is teaching his disciples that no one is above service, that no one is above serving. This is what his point is in verse 16. A servant is not greater than his master, a messenger not greater than the one whom he sent. He's like, look, friend, you're not above this. You're not above service. You're not above serving and you're not above being served. Jesus goes on in this section to make clear some things about the humiliation of the cross. And interestingly enough, in verses 18 through 30, Jesus makes a point really clear to his disciples that he is in control of his destiny. That there is no accident in the cross. That the accident isn't just a sort of a tragic fate of Jesus, but rather he demonstrates utter and total control, which again enables us. Because you know that service, you know what it does? It generates vulnerability in us. When you put yourself out there to serve someone, you could get hurt. You know, when you walk through, walk with a couple for months counseling them, and it doesn't work out, or perhaps they turn their back on you. Or that disciple that you've invested so much time in and helping them follow Jesus and then find out what happens. They walk away from the faith. It's costly to serve. And Jesus demonstrates what that looks like here in verses 18 through 30. He announces that there is one among them that's a betrayer. One whom he just washed his feet. And he tells them, listen. There's a betrayer among us. And of course, Peter, he's like calling his buddy John. Now here, John is kind of incognito. Uh, John is a humble guy, and he doesn't mention himself by name. Uh, he's the one whom Jesus loved. Now one might say, hey, that's a little prideful. Uh, but Jesus loved them all, right? But notice here in this section, in, beginning in verse 21, we're told 
that Peter calls out to, the, to John, the one whom he loved there in verse 23, and he says, hey, hey, Peter, ask, uh, ask Jesus um, who he's talking about. Who, who's the one? And Jesus responds. He says, it's the one whom I'm about to give this bread to. And of course, Jesus then hands the bread to, to Judas Iscariot. Judas dips it in. And then Jesus says, go do what you're going to do and do it quickly. A couple points I want to make about that. Number one, Jesus knew what was going to happen. Jesus knew who his betrayer was, and he did nothing to stop it. He was in control. Secondly, we see in this that Jesus offered Judas a chance. Whatever you're going to go do, do it quickly. One might conclude from this that Satan was the one in control, but not really. There was a moral responsibility on Judas's part. He was morally aware. He could have said, no, I'm not going to betray you, but he does it anyway. And John concludes this section in verse 30, a very ominous phrase. Look there in verse 30. And after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out and it was night. And John here is not commenting on the, the time of day, though maybe perhaps a little bit. The point is a little bit more bigger. Remember, Jesus has taught really quite extensively through John's gospel about light and dark. That men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Jesus was betrayed, but yet he still served. And for us this morning, really three main responses to this first section is that, number one, we must be washed if we be saved. Verse 8, again, if I don't wash you, you have no share of me. If you need not the cross and the humiliation of Christ on the cross, then you are not saved. You must have the cross to be saved. There must be a bloody cross or you and I still have a death that we deserve. You see, what Jesus Christ does on the cross isn't, isn't bearing sort of his own sin, but our sin our acts every one of our willful acts of rebellion jesus christ humiliated beaten scorned laughed at stabbed whipped all of it because of your sin because of my sin because i and you willingly chose to enjoy and love and dwell in sin rather than with god And he does it to serve us that we might be clean. Secondly, in verses 9 through 11, we saw that we must trust his washing. Peter here is trying to get away from the cross. He's saying like, no, like there's got to be another way. The exclusivity of the cross and the sufficiency of the cross is so clear. Let me reassure you, brother and sister, that, that you are to trust that the cross is sufficient to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. All of it. You, you, this morning, what it means to follow Jesus isn't trying to impress God so that you don't fall out of favor with Him. That's you saying to God, I don't need to be washed. I'll wash myself. 
But as Christians, following Jesus means trusting that what he did accomplished all of it. Past, present, and future sin is paid in full. It is washed. Now that doesn't lead to complacency, but to commitment to following Christ. This is why we see thirdly here that we are to humbly serve others. Notice there in verse 17 again what Jesus says. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Every one of you this morning is now morally culpable to the command to serve others. You know it. As Christians, we know it. We know we're to serve others. This isn't rocket science. This isn't new. This isn't something like, wow, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. No one ever told me when I signed up for this that I was supposed to serve. But notice here Jesus says, blessed are those who serve. You see, there's a blessing in serving others. There is tremendous wealth, wealth that this world could never accumulate when we humbly serve others. Notice here I keep using that word humble. Because there's a kind of prideful service. Man, look what I did. Hey, let me t- hey, you know, this week I was doing this and I did that and I helped so-and-so and I prayed with them and I read with them and I blah, blah, blah. I did all these great things. No, humble servant is that servant who serves without notice. A servant who serves without recognition. A servant who serves only one master and serves as Christ has served. Jesus says, just as I have. Not only is that a recognition of the pattern, but also the divine enablement. We are to serve as he has served. As John says in 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Service that Jesus has in mind here, is deadly. It might even cost you your life. It's a pretty extreme kind of service, isn't it? A little bit more than mowing someone's grass. A little bit more than maybe picking up a phone. This is a kind of radical service where we're willing to lay down our lives. Do you love this church, these people, that much that you would die for them? As Peter says in 1 Peter 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, toward other Christians. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Just like Jesus says, blessed are those who are humble. God gives grace to the humble. Brothers and sisters, you want to cultivate blessing in your life? Cultivate humble service. The kind of humiliation we see here. Well, we could continue on, but as Christians, we are to live lives that are marked by the cross. Marked by the humble service that Christ has given to us by sacrificially serving others. Well, secondly, here in verses 31 through 38, we see that the sacrificial love of Christ enables our sacrificial love toward one another. In beginning in verse 31, Jesus begins that sort of final discourse section I had mentioned earlier. We're told that Judas is gone, and now it's time to get down to business. The hour is at hand. The clock is ticking. In just a matter of hours, the band of soldiers will come to arrest Jesus. 
Judas leading the way to betray Jesus with a kiss. Jesus will be then marched away, paraded around, and ultimately executed as a prisoner of Rome. Jesus here must give them some final directions and final instructions. And he wants them to understand that what has just happened and what is about to happen is all about his love for them. That he's doing it out of love. That love is the supreme motivation. But also, we see the glory of God. Jesus here in verses 31 through 35 gives them a new commandment. And that new commandment is to love one another. But before he does, notice what Jesus says. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. You remember, I said all the way back at the beginning of John chapter 1, Jesus had two missions. Number one, to reveal the Father's glory and to die the death we deserve. The cross accomplishes both. It not only gives glory to God, it gives praise to God. It not only uh, demonstrates God's divine attributes and his character. It not only reveals who he is, but it demonstrates the kind of love he has for us. It, it glorifies him. And the Son of Man is glorified. And Jesus here uses that, that title of the Son of Man from From Daniel chapter 7, that high and lifted up one, that mighty warrior king to display the kind of of death he will die. In a victorious death that will glorify God. Jesus here is teaching that the cross is central to the glory of God. In other words, the cross isn't just sort of like, you know, just an aside. You know, a lot of times that's how we think about Christianity. It's like, all right, we know the gospel, we come to faith in Christ, and then we kind of move on to something else. Like we get on to like the better stuff, the the meteor stuff. Not at all. Jesus here teaches the disciples the central truth that you and I must walk away with this morning is that the cross of Jesus Christ is central to everything we say and do as Christians. Everything gets back to the cross. This morning in Sunday school, we talked about a biblical worldview. Where did we go? We went to the cross. Because at the cross, we understand to have glasses to see the world in which we live. Jesus goes on and tells his disciples in verse 33 that he's he's leaving very quickly. His departure is imminent. Now, again, Jesus has lived with these guys for three years. They've, They've left their homes. They left their families. And Jesus is telling them, listen, I'm about to leave, guys. I'm preparing you for the future. You may not be ready for it, but I'm going to be gone. Now, of course, he'll teach that it's good that he's going to be leaving because if he doesn't leave, then the Holy Spirit doesn't come. We'll get to that later in in the later chapters here. But he tells them, he calls them little children. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, he told the Jews that back in John chapter 8. He says, you're going to die in your sins and you can't come where I'm coming. Now, he doesn't say that to his disciples. But he says, you can't come with me, at least not now. In John chapter 14, he goes on, we'll go on to say in verse 3, and I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be 
and you know the way to where I am going. Jesus says, hey, listen, right now you can't come, but, but later on you'll come. I'm coming again. I'm preparing a place for you. But Jesus here gives them. He says, listen, I'm leaving, but, but I'm not leaving you alone, does he? Notice what Jesus does. He says, I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving you alone. Look there at verses 33 and 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you are to love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That one another, that fellowship, that koinonia, that church. The New Testament is littered with one another passages. One another, a family, a community. Jesus says, I'm not leaving you alone as orphans in this world, but, I, but I've left you a family of one another's, of brothers and sisters, blood bought by my sacrifice. And now you are a family, a community, a faith family who will, who will love one another and sacrifice for one another. Well, in what way is it a new commandment? Of course, the Old Testament commands God's people to love. Leviticus repeatedly, the law specifically, says, love one another. Jesus himself summarizes the law. Love God and love others. Well, in what way is this a new commandment? Well, look there, verse 34 again. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Just as Christ was to love them on the cross, they were to love one another. Jesus here defines what love is. You know, we, we might think love's that, that gushy uh, Hallmark card or, or might be some emotion that we have. But in the New Testament, most fundamentally, love is an action. It's a verb. It, it does something. God loved us in Christ by giving His Son for our sin. So Jesus here gives us this mutual love command. And, and in response, like, like I said, you'll, you see a little bit of Peter's character. Peter is obviously frustrated and he's like, Jesus, uh, no thank you. Um, I want to go with you and I'm willing to go with you. Jesus, I, I'm willing to die for you. And, and here Jesus predicts Peter's betrayal. And in just a matter of hours, G, Peter will have the opportunity uh, to stand strong and say, I'm a disciple of Jesus, but rather he will cower to a servant girl and deny that he even knew who Jesus was. We see three things in this I want to sort of walk out of, walk away with. First, that God is glorified in the cross. Friends, that has to be a central truth to us as a congregation. What do I mean? I mean that there is nothing that we need to give our attention to more than the cross of Jesus Christ. In what we say, in what we sing, and what we think. The cross is the methodology by which we live. A methodology of humble service and sacrifice to others. That's how we are to behave. There isn't some gimmick out there that will fix the church. The cross must be the central point by which we think and meditate on. We cannot get beyond the cross. Secondly, we see in this that we need an eternal perspective while we live in a fallen world. See, that's what Jesus was doing. Jesus was, was painstakingly helping his disciples 
by loving them, by helping them see a divine perspective. Notice what I mean here. Jesus says, you can't follow me. Peter responds, Lord, where are you going? I can go there too, can't I? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But you will afterward. The Gospel of John ends with Peter being told by Jesus that he will die an excruciating death. And that afterward he will follow. See, Peter did have a cross. It just wasn't the cross of Calvary. It was another cross. It was the cross of being a disciple that Peter would bear. And Jesus here gives him a perspective. He says, listen, while you suffer in this world, I go to prepare a place for you and I'm coming again. And as, as Christians, that's the perspective we have to see this world with. We will suffer in this world, but Jesus is coming again. We, we, we will be with him. This is what enables us to love sacrificially. Third and finally, we see that Christian love is to be the mark of all true disciples. I don't think we could say it any more clearly than we've said it today, that if you don't have love in you, then you don't have God in you. I don't know how else to say it. If you don't love other Christians, and I don't mean tolerate other Christians. Jesus didn't say, look, you got to tolerate one another until I come back. No, he says you got to love the way I loved. See, Jesus loved us, as we heard in Romans chapter 5, that God showed his love for us even while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. You know, we love those who love us. We love lovable people. But if you've been around Christians a lot, they ain't very lovable. It's hard to love Christians, all right? It's It's hard to love people. And Jesus loved us while we hated him, while we wanted nothing to do with him. And brothers and sisters, we want to cultivate us, cultivate in us a love for one another that is deep and abiding, a genuine love. If we do not have genuine love, then we do not have Christ. Beloved, if if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. If you hate your brother, John said earlier in 1 John Chapter 4, you're you're a liar. If you say you know God, but you hate, you are a liar. You are deceived, he says. Paul gives us a clear exhortation in Ephesians 5.2. Walk in love. Let your life be characterized by love. What love? The love that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A costly sacrificial love. That's the kind of love we want to cultivate here, brothers and sisters. And notice here, I want to, you want to see the greatest evangelistic method there ever is in the world? You, you want to know the best uh, program to reach people for Jesus? You want to know what it is? Jesus tells us right here, look at it, verse 35. By this, by what? Your sacrificial love, all people will know that you are my disciples. Do your friends know that you're a Christian? Is it because you pride around, I know the Bible, I'm going to heaven. I know truth and you don't. 
Or is it your love that you have for these people in this room? And they hear about it. You're always helping them people out. Always praying for them. Always going by and taking food to them. Always going and reading scripture with them. And, 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 and Why? We're your family. You may be my earthly family, but you're not my eternal family. Do we love the way Christ loved us? We see here in this chapter a living illustration of the cross. Christ was not ushering in a new ordinance for the church, but ushering in a new era of God's redemptive history through through his death on the cross. And through the cross, through rightly understanding the humiliation and the sacrificial love of Christ, you and I can do the same. This morning, if you don't know the love of God, perhaps you've thought that being a Christian is just you know, trying to make sure God's not mad at you. Just trying to do it enough good where God doesn't you know, smite you on the spot. Friend, there's a better way to follow Jesus than that. The true way. And that's by you... Stopping living the way you're living right now. And we don't need to get into all the details of how you're living. If you don't understand yourself to be a Christian this morning, I know how you're living. I used to live that way. And the people around you used to live that way. And it is a horrible way. It is a deadly way. And, and only by turning and trusting and, and saying that you are in need of a Savior and believing upon Jesus and accepting His love for you accepting that He died on the cross for your sin, only then can you truly be blessed. Only then will you truly be happy when you experience the love of God for you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning as we take communion together. Take a moment just to reflect on what we thought about this morning of the humiliation of Christ and the love of God in Christ for our sin, the the willingness of Christ, knowing the cross was before him, but yet stepping forward and dying the death that I deserve, that we all deserve. We give you praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.